0: The worst conflicts you can have are under the surface. The fights in practice are never the problem. The problem are the fights that don't come up, that happen below the surface. And I think in every single period of the season, you need strong leadership. In the beginning, it's important. In the middle, it's very important. And towards the end, it's almost life-saving.
1: Welcome to Slapping Glass. Where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Medi Bayreuth and Germany's BBL, Raul Corner. Coach Corner is here today to discuss growing and thriving during mid-season, the ins and outs of hedging the pick and roll, and we talk stopping the run, post-passing, and guarding 45 cuts during a thought-provoking start, sub, or sit. As we turn to the new year, we're excited to continue growing and building the value of Slapping Glass+. Plus. Find out more why current members of all levels from over 20 countries are calling SG+, Plus the best platform to connect, learn, and explore the craft of coaching. Visit SlappingGlass.com for more information today. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Raul Corner. Coach, thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you today.
0: Thank you very much for having me on your show. Excited to
1: thank you, absolutely. So, Coach, we wanted to start with a conversation about kind of mid-season thoughts on how you get your team from wherever you're at, you know, in the early season, as you kind of enter into maybe league play conference play to get better and better going into the playoffs. And specifically, we wanted to start with the leadership element and how guys in your locker room, your captains, guys that you rely on from the leadership aspect, things that you like to see out of them in the middle of the season that kind of help your team continue to progress and have a flow as you get deeper into the season.
0: So first of all, just stressing the importance of leadership. I thought a lot about successful teams that I've coached. And of all the successful teams that I've had, they only had three things in common. That was a high level of discipline. That was very strong on-court leadership. And that's exactly what you're mentioning here. And that's been a good team chemistry. So on-court leadership from players, leadership from within for me is one of the central focus points if you want to have a successful season. So especially when the season is not at its peak yet, the first excitement is over. I mean, you know how it is. People meet first time in locker room. Nobody steps on anybody's toes. Everybody's friend with each other. Then starts the structuring of the team. Then you hand out the roles. Then people start wondering why they're not getting as many shots as they expected to, why they're not playing as many minutes as they have expected Then comes the tough part. The team has to find the way. The team has to define the roles. You as a coach do your job, of course. In the beginning, you try to imagine who's going to be in which role, but you never know. Players come together, they play together, they interact with each other, and all of a sudden you find out different things. So, You also got to be very flexible in that aspect. And In order to, first of all, transport your philosophy into the team, you need a strong team leader. Then also to make sure that everybody's on the same page working towards a team goal, you need a strong team leader. As a coach, you have to understand that every player comes with certain individual interests. Everybody has his own goals. And I think it's very important for us coaches to understand and to know what the individual goals are, because if the player doesn't feel that I'm helping him to fulfill his individual goals, he's not going to help me to win with the team. So I think that's very important to understand. And Team leaders can help you there. Team leaders can tell every player, look, you buy into the concept and the concept is going to help you. That's important. And then, of course, you hit some tough times. Days get shorter, yeah. dark weather outside. You can't do anything outside. We all know about the COVID situation. Uh, you can not barely do anything. And uh, all you do is basically easily practice, eat, sleep, practice and all over again. So then you need also strong leadership to make sure that you have good atmosphere around the team. So I think in every single period of the season, you need strong leadership. In the beginning, it's important. In the middle, it's very important. And towards the end, it's almost life-saving.
2: Coach, to follow up on maintaining the good atmosphere, Mm -hmm. what are some of the ways you think a good team leader does that? And like we said, in the middle of the season.
0: It can be very simple things like taking the team out to dinner, doing some things off the court. That's the obvious things. But then there are things that are maybe just as important to make sure and to also have a sensitive feeling for what's going on around the team. If a player is unhappy for whatever reason, a lot of reasons, private reasons, basketball reasons, that he points this out. If there is uh, stress amongst the players, I mean, the worst conflicts you can have are under the surface. The, the fights in practice are never the problem. The problem are the fights that don't come up, that happen below the surface. And addressing those things, I think, are just equally as important just to make sure that the team stays on the same page. I mean, I think everybody knows this who has a little bit to do with leadership, that there are certain phases of team development. You have the, the forming, the storming, and, and so on, uh, norming, performing phases. It's very important to survive that storming phase and get to a performing stage with the team. And in in that phase, the team leader, the team captain, ideally has a very big influence on the outcome.
1: Coach, it's really hard to be a peer leader. It's hard to lead someone that's the same age as you, like whether, you know, 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, or even as a pro. When we are talking about leadership right now and these guys that do a really great job, how do you personally try to help them? You know, so the conversations you have with them to help them lead their peers, which is a tough thing to do.
0: Yes, it is. First of all, I think you have to be born a leader in a certain way. You can get better at it, but you have to be an alpha male or female, of course. You have to feel comfortable to speak up. Uh, So if you're a really introverted personality, I think it will be very difficult for you to be a leader. Those are things that are probably there or are not there. And I mean, leadership is very, very different. You can lead by example. You can lead by rah-rah. You can lead in many, many ways. But the leadership we are talking about here right now, I think, is a leadership in all aspects. It's leading Mm -hmm. by example. It's leading by speaking out. It's leading by representing. It's leading by taking ownership. I think that's also very important. So uh, you can get better at it. And this is where you as a coach can help the player. You can speak to him about certain deficits he or she has in leadership, whether it's being too emotional, whether it's to addressing things in the wrong way, whether to encourage him or her to speak out. I think it's also very important to put that leader in a role and in a position to lead. Very simple example, in youth basketball, for example, we had some just to simulate the stress on free throws, and we had to I line the players up and everybody shoot a free throw. And if you didn't make it, the whole team had to run, right? And I would have my team captain shoot a free throw and a team captain was always double. So if he would miss, the team would have to run twice and I wouldn't let him <laughs> run with it. You know, I wouldn't let him run with the team. I would have him watch the whole team run. And just to stress that, look, uh, with the leadership comes responsibility. Yes, it's a plus that you're getting, but you also have responsibility towards the group. And I think that's very important to stress. And again, you have to give a leader room to lead and you cannot be afraid of losing control as a leader coach I'm talking about now because giving a leader room to lead also means to take a step back and to also encourage a leader to speak up. And this might be against something you do. This might be when a leader comes up coach. I don't think we're, I don't know, doing the right thing here. I think we should defend this different. Or coach, I don't think we're practicing hard enough. Coach, I think we're practicing too much. I think we're tired. If you want leadership, you cannot have the rose without its thorns. So it, it also comes with counteraction of the leader, maybe against you. And you have to be ready for this. And I think one of the biggest mistakes, leaders... Coaches, I mean now, and and this can be leaders in companies. One of the biggest mistakes is that we complain to not have leadership on one hand, but on the other hand, we don't even allow it because we don't like people to speak up. We don't like people to speak against us. We like yes-sayers and Mm yes-sayers are no leaders. I think this is something where we have to remind ourselves, we want leadership. We also got to take, for us, not so comfortable aspects of leadership.
2: Coach, that's a very good point because with your leader... Do you want all the information if he's willing to share it with you in terms of if guys are upset about maybe their role or their playing time and they're talking to your leader, do you want the leader then to always give you that information or is it on him to kind of filter what is probably an important, a problem or what is, let's keep this kind of between us, try to solve it. You know, how much
0: information do you want? No, I don't want everything. I want the leader and not a spy within the team. I think that's a big difference.
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: So a leader can only lead if the group trusts him. And the group only trusts him if the group knows that the leader is not the spy of the coach. So I expect from a leader to really judge by himself what are the informations that have to be forwarded towards the coach for the good of the team. I don't need to know everything. All coaches who are in this business for a longer time know that players are going to complain about them once in a while. That's part of it. Just as much as we pitch about our players, it's it's normal. It it just comes with the business. So, that's okay. You know, that's fine. It's the same with a physiotherapist or an athletic trainer, you know, uh, players are going to complain to them and and they need to go somewhere or they complain to their wives about the coach. It's okay. It's all fine. I mean, if at the end of the day, if they don't address me, I might probably be the only one who can solve the problem. So they will find out and they will figure out, okay, I need to address the coach if I really want to change something. Mm. But sometimes it's enough just to get rid of frustration, just to get it out, you know? Yeah. I definitely do not want my leader to become a spy of mine and start to become someone who just forwards every secret of the team. Definitely not, no.
1: Coach, staying on the concept of mid-season development and teams that are successful and kind of now focusing on yourself as a coach, I'm interested in your midseason thoughts on like your daily process on how you think about getting your team better. Right? It's not the early season where you're kind of tinkering with what you're going to run. Like You know what you're going to run. You know your team now. So you mentioned three things that lead to success, the discipline, the encore leadership, the team chemistry. How do you view that mid-season and what maybe needs to be tweaked or changed as you guys move on?
0: I think a season is always a process of development. So whether it's in preseason, you try to get better, you try to install basic things, your principles, et cetera. In midseason, you're finding out the difference between theory and practice. So uh, <laughs> right. every thought you had in the summer, now you see on the court, whether it be players and their skills, whether it be combinations of lineups, whether it be tactics offensively or defensively. So now is the time to evaluate what of your original thoughts actually do work and which don't. And I think it's very important there to be honest to yourself and be ready to throw things overboard if they just don't work. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not changing our philosophy. So some things don't work because they're not executed properly. That's a big difference. You don't throw those overboard. You work on the details and you make sure that you execute it right. But if things don't work because they just don't fit the personnel of the team or the team just doesn't believe in them, get rid of them. Don't spend any more time on it. And, And I think this is the period where Those things start to show which one are our bread and butter plays, which plays are just going to disappear throughout the next couple of weeks or months, or which are situations that we need to add. I mean, sometimes you sign a player and you think, okay, he's not a post up player, but we can use him in pick and pop, for example. And all of a sudden you find out, hey. He's actually a pretty good post-up player. So we might add some post-up play for him. That's actually a very concrete example for us right now. We're starting to discover some skills of certain players. Hey, he might be well used in a in a post-up situation. Or some other players that were bread and butter players the last two, three seasons are suddenly they just don't work for this team. So I think it's a continuous process. The, the other challenge we have with Bayreuth right, right now are that we have so many injuries that our lineup changes almost every week. We're missing three potential starters right now, actually already for the last four weeks. And we've been forced to make adjustments, make little changes in the lineup. And of course, with that comes in the style of play, you might have to double team every time another team throws the ball to the low post. We have to double team, which has got one true center right now. We also have one true point guard right now, so we have to somehow protect him. We might have to play some zone for now just to mess up the rhythm or just to protect certain players from foul problems. So I think some of those urgencies, whether it be injuries or some individuals not performing as they should or performing better, as you expected, make it necessary to have a continuous development throughout the whole year and especially in mid Coach,
2: I'd like to focus back on what you said about Noticing some skills from some players that you didn't expect and starting to maybe play around it. You know, we don't have to get too specific with your case, but what do you have to see from that skill? Whether do you have to see flashes in the game, do you have to see that player constantly doing in practice to think we should incorporate that into our offense?
0: Both, of course, first in practice. If he doesn't on a consistent basis, then you start thinking, okay, hey, we might want to use this in the game a little more. So then you get him maybe selectively in one or two situations throughout the game and given the chance to also show that skill during the game and hey when it helps the team more than it hurts the team then that might be a good reason to use it it's always at the end of the day does it help us win games yes then do it if it doesn't help us win games or only helps his stats let's forget it
1: piggybacking off of that too is with mid-season your personnel decisions and early in the season maybe you're playing deeper into your bench so you can get some guys some minutes to see what they can or can't do in a game. But now when it's winning time, do you think about chunking the rotations down so the top group gets more minutes together? Or do you think about continuing to try to expand? Obviously, you've had injuries, so I know that plays a big part. But I guess your thoughts on just rotations and personnel midseason.
0: Well, our rotation the last couple of weeks was down to seven. So I don't know how I should reduce this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: right. <laughs> so I need to have some creativity now to answer the question, but yeah. I know where you're going. Too. So I think in general, it's a good idea to keep a wide rotation, especially to maintain a certain level of intensity. You cannot pressure for 40 minutes and be focused on both ends of the floor. If you play 35 minutes, uh, it's not at the level of BBL. so it's not possible. And everybody who tells you he can is a liar. I mean, you have players who so say, "Hey, no problem, I can play 40 minutes." No, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least not at the level that we need you to. So that the more people you have who can give you something, the more it will benefit. I mean, we play two games a week. We are also in international competition with playing the FIFA Euro Cup. So you need players because you're going to have injuries you're going to have foul problems and then you better have players being able to step up in our situation that we have right now in Bayroid, as i said we have three players out we used to have four or five players out of basically a 10-man rotation now 10-man rotations is pretty big already if you rotate with 10 guys that's a lot. Uh, I heard a coach once say when he was asked, uh, how many guys do you rotate with? It's like, well, um, I am I rotate with nine, I play seven, and I trust four.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So <laughs> that's basically what it comes down to. But we really tried to rotate with a planned 10-man rotation. Of this 10-man rotation, five players were out. You cannot play with five. Yeah. So we had to bring in our 11th and 12th men in key roles, and they did well. And when one or two others came back, even though they were not designated 30-minute players, they were already feeling the confidence to play certain minutes and they already knew what they had to do to help the team. So then you can survive those type of periods. I mean, we've won the last four league games without three starters. And we're not a, a Euroleague squad where you have 12 equally decorated players and experienced players. We're not set up like this. And this was only possible because players chipped in. They just fight to fulfill their role and to help the team. And of course, the remaining key players to perform at a certain level. That's crucial, of course.
2: Sticking with the tweaks, the midseason tweaks to your offense. I know the answer probably is both to some degree, but how much of when you're looking to continue to improve, is it what we do well of who we are, of our identity versus what the league is doing? So whether it's what the league's doing well that you have to defend or what they're doing defensively that we have to get better at, or we have to maybe change, you know, to make a deep run or to be successful late in the season.
0: You're right. It's both. On one hand, you cannot do what everybody else does because otherwise you're not going to have an advantage. So I really strongly believe in trying to do something else to surprise and not go with the flow and go with everybody else. On the other hand, you have to know what the specific strengths and weaknesses of the league are. So in Germany, you're going to need a certain kind of athleticism on the roster in order to survive. And that's something you always have to have in consideration. On the other hand, when I came to the league my first year before I started to take over Braunschweig, I talked to some coaches who've coached in Germany or still coach in Germany and ask them, look, what advice would you give me as a rookie coach in this league? And I think that goes for any league. What's the league like? What do I have to really focus on? Where do I have to be good at? And what are the mistakes that you may have made? And one coach told me, and I think that was probably the best advice he gave me, was don't just recruit out of the league. Because if you just recruit players coming out of your own league, you pay for what you get. Mm -hmm. Since we're not a high budget team, we would be in deep trouble if we only get what we pay for. We need to get more. So we got to take some risk in recruiting and not go with the flow. We cannot wait, okay, which player functions in this league, which player is is doing well. And now I sign him because you pay exactly what you get. So that's not enough from that aspect, especially from recruiting aspect. I think you have to go a little different routes. If you want to be successful basketball wise, you have to have that in mind. Of course.
2: You mentioned a coach said that he only trusts four. I'm really curious when you get into a crunch time, the late game, a close game, what players do you trust because I think there's always a different layers of trust. Like I trust this player to score, but he may not necessarily defend. I trust this player because he's going to be defending, but he probably can't score. So yes, what do you value when you want to put guys in that you trust? What's the most value to you?
0: Well, it depends on the situation and what I need. If we're up 12 and I just need to protect the lead, I definitely trust the better defenders more or the better rebounders more mm-hmm. than creative offensive players who might give me something creative or something crazy, but who will not do their job on the defensive end. So the lineup I have on the floor towards the end of the game really depends on the situation of the game. Do we have the advantage by score? Do we have the advantage by momentum? What's been the history of the game? Who really played well? Who really plays with self-confidence? And I could not tell you today which will be the lineup I'm going to have on the floor in the next close game, because I don't know, it might be more defensive oriented lineup might be more offensive oriented lineup. I mean, the lineup we won the game with yesterday contained two players who didn't even play two weeks ago because they were still injured or out and they were in the lineup because they found a way to help the group to win that game. Uh, Whether it was defensively on rebound, knocking down shots, playing with the right, also body language. This always is very, very different from game to game.
1: Coach, how do you try to simulate those situations in practice so that you have a sense of under pressure who plays well in certain situations before you even maybe get to the game?
0: That's a very good question. And whenever I find out, I'm going to write a book and get very rich. (laughs) 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 because I think that's one of the million dollar questions we coaches have. First of all, I don't think you can simulate the pressure of games in practice. Yes, of course, you can play competitive segments of the game and have the losers run or whatever, but it's, it's never going to be the, the same pressure when the gym is packed, the game is on the line, cameras on. It's just a different situation. On the other hand, even little scrimmages in practice, little situations in practice already show which players are focused enough to make right decisions. And a lot of times it's about the focus. It's about forgetting about the last play and focusing on the next and making the right decisions on offense, but also on the defensive end, just not messing up. I think you get a pretty good idea throughout any practice, whether it's a drill or it's more competitive segment of practice, you get an idea of which player is able to focus and make the right decisions when crunch time comes.
1: Coach, we've talked about mid-season tweaks to your offense, your defense, personnel. And as a head coach for you, there's a million things on your mind and a million things that you could get better at mid-season. How do you decide what to spend your focus and your time on to actually get your team better when you sit down every day in the office?
0: you got to see where the biggest problems are. If you have certain situations that make you lose games, then... You got to think, OK, can we improve those things by our working or are those just things we'll have to live with? That's one aspect. And of course, also from the other direction, I think it's also good not to only focus on your weaknesses, but also to focus on your strengths. Say, OK, what makes us win games? Can we get better at this? If we're not a good rebounding team, we got to create some extra possessions by either not turning the ball over or getting some steals or we have to defend so aggressively that it doesn't come down to a rebound.
2: Hey coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com slash form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Coach,
1: we'd like to move on to another conversation we'd love to have with you about hedging in a pick and roll and also defending the short roll yes, and kind of a mixture of all that goes into it. I know that to start historically, I know you're someone that has utilized the hedge in your defensive pick and roll coverage and of all the different coverages that you can choose to drop, to switch, to double to hedge. Why have you landed on using the hedge as one of your pick and roll coverages, at least in the most recent few seasons?
0: That's a good question. Well, first of all, there's a history. I have started out with hedging hard, because that's just the way I felt most comfortable. And then when I came to Germany, I started to change this because uh, players were too athletic. I felt like they were pick us apart, and uh, we didn't have a big guy to hedge with. So the personnel was just not there to go with hard hedge. So we went into ice defense drop defense and we did all kinds of other variations and i think three years ago four years ago i came back to hedging hard again because it felt like we could protect our big guy the best we have a very smart but not very athletic seven footer who was very vulnerable in downhill drive especially pick and roll situations he has big problems of staying in front of a quick guard who attacks him off the dribble and you can complain about this as a hey you've got to keep your man in front stop the lane and so on or you can help him to make it easier for him and we found out that he was actually very good at hatching out because for him it was just okay one or two aggressive steps out he would take away the initial speed of the ball handler and then he just had to get back to his big guy and since he's very smart he had a very good timing and a feeling for when and how far to need to step out so that was the reason why i changed this it worked for us lately we get back to having more variations on our pick and roll coverage. I mean, first of all, you cannot play 40 minutes the same pick and roll coverage at this level anyway. So it's it's not possible. But I'm a strong believer in having a bread and butter difference and going from there. And if it works, fine, you ride the wave. If it doesn't work, you have to make a quick decision. Does it not work because you are doing certain things the wrong way you're sleepy then you have to fix that because you can change to any other defense if you're sleepy if you're not ready to be aggressive uh, you're not going to be successful with any pick and roll coverage so the tactical assignment is not the problem it's the details then you have to work on this but it just doesn't work in that game because the opponents are really well prepared for it they're doing a good job of moving the ball quickly out of the hedge and creating early advantages and they're reacting bad to let's say a drop defense ice defense uh, switch defense trap what's whatever then you have to be able to adjust and do something else and the we have a ton of variations on pick and roll uh, coverages. Yes, we're a bread and butter hard hedge team, but if that doesn't work, we're going to have different answers.
2: Coach, to get into the details with you of the hard hedge, hmm. what is a hard hedge to you? Is it a one step? Is it two step? Is it stay with him for so many dribbles? You know, what are you telling your big man when he's hard hedging?
0: So I think the most important thing is the pressure on the ball. If you have an aggressive defender on the ball, you do not need to hedge every single time. And this is where it all starts from. It starts with pressure on the ball. Because if the defender of the ball handler never gets under the line of the screen, you don't need to hedge. You can destroy that screen one-on-one. And I think in modern basketball, it's very important to avoid any kind of uh, advantages the offense might create by having two players on the ball so a lot of times just by being aggressive getting on the hip of the defender and fighting over that screen can destroy any kind of offense and can keep you from not having to rotate the next thing is when the guy is aggressive on the ball of course it, he doesn't get beat opposite of the screen because if the big man gets ready to out on one side and the ball handler gets beat yep. opposite that's trouble right there it's the ball handler's responsibility get on his hip Don't get beat opposite. What we tell the bigs is uh, show early. So I want the big man to show early in contact with the screener, with his offensive player. A lot of times this already is enough that the ball handler hesitates. The big man slips. The big man stays with his man. There should be no need to help or whatsoever. One-on-one responsibility all the way. If now the ball handler attacks that screen we tell our big man to attack the pick and roll ball handler chest to nose so we want the chest of the hedger on the nose of the ball handler so this can be one step this can be two step this depends we just want to achieve that the ball handler needs to take passive dribbles towards the half court line that's what we want we hedge out parallel to the sideline so we want the ball handler to take one or two retreat dribbles and in this moment we can recover that's basically the rule of thumb that we give our bigs
2: And coach, who's more responsible, I guess, for if the guard splits, does that mean the point guard didn't put enough pressure or the big stepped out too high too soon? Who's kind of more at fault do you find with the guard splitting it?
0: It's both. First of all, a lot of times it's separation that the ball handler has towards his defender, mm-hmm. because if there's no separation, you cannot split. Or it's separation that the big man has from his offensive player. Whether he gets down screen first, he gets a pin down, and then is late on the hedge out. Yeah. And then he still wants to make up for it, hedges out in the wrong angle or late, then he can get split as well. So it's usually a separation either caused by the guard or by the big, and sometimes by both.
2: Coach, turning now to the million dollar question, which I think as the game progresses is containing or stopping the short roll, especially when you're going to be aggressive on the ball. So I'm really curious, how do you choose to rotate with the three guys behind the pick and roll to protect the short roll?
0: So, first of all, again, it has to come down to the two and two. And that's why whenever we build up our pick and roll defense, we always start in two and two because we feel like the better we work in two and two, the more aggressive we're on the ball, the more aggressive we're on the hedge out. So, it's not only chest to nose hedge out, it's also the hand of the hedge out attacking the ball. And a lot of times, just by being aggressive, timing this perfectly, you can solve this 2 and 2 You can deflect the pass with your leg. You can kick it with your leg. You can deflect it with an active arm. So this is where it all starts. And then, of course, you need to integrate the three other players. We always like to help off the two-man side. So wherever that is, whether it's going direction of the dribble or opposite of the dribble, yeah. for us, it doesn't matter. The two-man side is responsible. Whereas the, the deep man, we call out last man. So we always call out last, last, last. He's responsible for the roll-off. That being said, with the deep roll, it's very clear. He attacks the guy. As soon as he catches the ball, he needs to be body up, contact, and we drop the remaining player on the two-man side between the two other guys. Mm-hmm. Right, So he will have to play both for a second. On a short roll, it's a little more difficult. And of course, a lot of teams like to attack hard-hedge defense with short roll. So first of all, if it's a slip, it shouldn't be an issue because no slip, no separation. The big man should be with him with a quick stunt. We should have the problem solved. It would have to be an attack against a very... Aggressive hedging out big against very active hands of the guard, throwing a pocket pass towards the short draw. So, this is already well done if you execute this. And now, same rules apply. Now, we have the bottom man, so the last man responsible for the short draw. And now we have basically two ways to defend this. Number one, if we have a very dangerous short draw passer or even shooter from the five spot, we would attack him. On the catch and be all over him. So basically, as soon as he catches the ball, he would have a body in his face. He would have the hands all over him. We drop that second guy under the basket to take away the second pass from the short roller Mm -hmm. to the short corner uh, cut uh, under the basket. And we would have the the passer jump into the between his man and the other man where the second guy rotated off. Right. So we would be super aggressive on the short roll guy. But this is timing, and this is very important that you're there. If we don't respect the short roller for his shot or for his ability to put the ball on the floor and make a play, we would just fake with the bottom guy. So we would just fake with this last guy and immediately get back to our men. And with this fake, have him think for a split second, okay, what am I going to do now? I'm, I'm actually open to shoot. I'm not told to shoot it. I'm told to look for the guy cut in you know, from the baseline or 45 cut or whatever. So I'm going to look for this, but oops, this is not open. And in this moment, we hope to get the big guy back. Where we would attack is as soon as he starts to put the ball on the floor. So now if he starts to make this one dribble to attack the open lane that he might see, we're going to step in with the bottom guy and try to pick up the charge and start the rotation situation. So those are the two main coverages we have. We either go with commit, where we're very aggressive, or we just fake, stunt and get back and only commit on the dribble.
2: Coach, with the commit defense, when they throw it to the short roll, the help comes. Yes. The big man, is he recovering back to then the short roll or is he yes. trying to find the open man?
0: No, he recovers back. But we have two seven-footers as big men and we would not do ourselves or them a favor trying to pick up the next shooter mm-hmm. and like getting beat the next closeout and being missed on rebound. So we always... Also, to make it easier for the big, we always bring the big man back to his man. And this may result in a double team if you already caught the ball, or this might result in a big, big switch sometimes. Because if you have the baseline helpman was the foreman, the foreman now commits on the short roll guy and the five man recovers and sees the foreman cut under the basket. He might just rotate through and, and we got a big, big switch. But he always focuses on after the hedge, sprint towards your big and pick him up. And then it's also very important that while picking him up, he understands the angle of potential passes so that he cannot recover and just try to get under his offensive player. He needs to play potential passes because we had to rotate from somewhere. Somebody's going to be open. So you really have to use your hands actively to make those passes difficult because the most dangerous pass is not the first pass. It's the second pass.
1: Coach, on that second pass, you mentioned a couple of times about 45 cuts or corner cuts or things like that that are on that backside. What are the types of cuts that, you know, if a team is going to hedge and play through the short roll that they really need to work on guarding so that they don't get punished on that second pass? Well, I think
0: the most dangerous cut is the baseline cut from the two-man side. The deep man helps on the short roll. And if the offensive player of the helping guy cuts under the basket, you're going to either give up that cut, which is obviously not an option, or you're going to have a shooter who needs to drop below the vision of the big man for a jump shot going to give up most likely a shot there what we try to do is you have to stay with the cutter there's no question about this so you got to stay with him but the passer is key in this situation the defender of the passer and he needs to immediately after the pass the short row he immediately needs to straddle the potential open shooter and his own man and here again it's all about active hands it's about uh, playing passing lanes it's about playing potential openings so we always when we recover to somebody we always want to make sure that we play potential passing lanes with our hands
2: coach another scenario i'm curious to hear is when they hit that throw ahead pass so maybe the low man synced in to ready to pick up the roll. yes but then they advance it to the 45 when is that low guy moving i guess you know as far as you know he's got to now kind of guard two yes you know what are you telling him there
0: that's a great question. So, first of all, we need to protect the basket, right? So he cannot leave the big guy before the big man recovers. Mm-hmm. Now it's the job of this guy who's playing one against two, right? We have that one guy who who just picks up the guy on the wing for the hit-ahead pass. Yeah. He needs to close out one against two. We say it's a one against two closeout. So he has to play the extra pass, right? So he's not stopping the lane to the basket. He stops the lane of the extra pass because one of the most difficult shots to guard or mo- one of the most easy shots to make in modern basketball is the corner three and we have to take this away so it's the job of this guy to buy some time for the last defender to recover and close out to his man in the corner by playing that passing lane that being said you're giving up the middle drive yeah. yes absolutely and we don't have a problem with this because we're going to have the defender of the ball handler stunt in aggressively and take this away it's very important for that player to understand do i close out on a player in his shooting range? If yes, you have to attack his shoulder because you don't want to give an open shot from there either. Mm -hmm. So you attack his shoulder and play with your hands. You play the extra pass, forcing him to put the ball on the floor and forcing him basically directly into the packed middle. If he's not in his shooting range, if he stepped out wide because you were so aggressive, right? Because the next guy, you can only play the hit ahead pass if the guy comes to meet the ball. So ideally, he's not in shooting range. Ideally, he needs to take one, two, three steps towards the half court line, away from the three point line, then you don't have to attack his shoulders There's no necessity. You just play the space between the guy and the extra pass. And basically, as soon as he puts the ball on the floor, then you can recover to him. But by the time he put the ball on the floor once or twice, your big man better be back with the other big <laughs> And then the wind can get out and you have established a weak side situation. So you have one more player who can close that window. We always call this the window of a potential pass to the big man. We need to close this window as early as possible. That being said, aggressive ball pressure, active hands, fly with the pass, all those basics that need to be executed if you want to be successful in hard-hedge pick and roll defense.
2: Coach, my last question, and just to show that third defender some love. So the guy on the single side, <laughs> when does he start to factor in or what important role does he play within that defense? Especially, I'm assuming, when the ball goes to that two-man side.
0: Yes. First of all, the main thing is that he doesn't do too much because we don't want to help off the single side. Even though the pick and roll might be played towards the two-man side, a lot of players have this natural instinct, I need to bump the roll up. No, you don't. Yeah. You can if uh, there's bad spacing by offense so if the offense gives you the chance to bump but be out of the shooter at the same time feel free to do so but you'll never want to give up an open shot so that's one thing i I think he always plays an important role in this because he needs to be disciplined needs to see okay how much can i help in? Or maybe I can just fake the help and get back out. All right. So maybe he can play a little bit with the ball handler, make him think, okay, this pass to the one man side is open. And I just fake the help to the roller and I'll be out on the catch. Maybe even get a deflection on the pass, or at least I can be out there and contest the shot and be there on the catch. Of course, when the ball gets hit ahead, he needs to drop and he needs to provide help side because he needs to, as I said before close the window of the pass towards the big, because the big man is going to recover from top. The baseline defender is still going to come out from the baseline, closing out on the baseline shooter. So there might be a window for a bounce pass towards the baseline to hit the big. And this bounce pass needs to be secured by that last man. Coach,
2: I'm sorry. I got one more situation. You'll see it a lot. When teams do like a shallow cut, They run the screen and they have a shallow cut, maybe a 45 Mm -hmm. to 45 cut. How Mm -hmm. does that change the rules of who then is, is the shallow cut guy become the last man or does the last man stay, you know, how does it kind of contort your defense with a 45 to 45 cut?
0: We sewn up whenever the pick and roll is applied. It doesn't matter what the other guys do. Okay. We have our sewn up and we go from there. Another cut that can be very difficult for hard is if they flip the screen, for example. This can also be yeah. or provide a challenge for hard hedge So in that situation, as soon as we decide, hey, screen left and we know we're going to go hard hedge, And as soon as the defender makes an effort to force him towards the screen where the screen disappeared now, as soon as the big guy sees this, he still has to hedge out. Regardless, not whether he flips the screen or not, he still hedges out on that side okay. that we first decided to go out on. That's one thing. And the other thing, whenever you're late, don't hedge out anymore, then you're just in drop difference. Uh, so I think that's also important. You talked about the dangerous split action. A lot of times it, it happens because a big man is late. He loses contact to his offensive player. He tries to step out late and then he gets split. If you're late, then stay back.
1: We want to transition now to a segment that we call Start sub or sit and we play with every guest here on the show and what we'll do is uh, for those maybe listening for the first time we'll give you three different topics around a theme ask you which one you would start which one you'd sub and then which one you leave on the bench and sit so coach if you're ready we'll dive in on this
0: let's do it
1: (laughs) okay so this first start subset has to do with your thoughts on stopping another team when they're on a run. So a team goes on a six, seven, eight, oh 0 run or something and they're playing well. Things you may or may not do as a coach to stop the run. So start, sub, or sit, calling a quick timeout to break the rhythm, switching up your defense, maybe throwing a different coverage at them, or making a couple of substitutions, personnel decisions to see if you can put better matchups out there on the floor.
0: Can I say all three? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with the Thomas Iserlo answer. It depends. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a very common answer on this show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I,
0: I know. I know. Because, I mean, all three things are absolutely worth thinking of. First of all, I think that the main question is how many timeouts do I have? Is it early in the game? How's the body language of my team? Do I need to save a timeout? So timeout is always a good thing. But on the other hand, as a coach, especially myself, I try to avoid it if I get the feeling the team can solve the problem from within with the huddle. And that depends a lot on body language. If they have the right body language, if they feel like, okay, they're getting together, they feel in sync, then I don't use the timeout. So let's put the timeout on the bench then.
1: Okay.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Changing defenses. Actually, let's have the time on the sub. I would put changing the defenses on the bench because a lot of times teams get on the run because you are not executing your things well. And you can not solve the problem a lot of times just by changing up defenses. The reason we're doing certain things is because we believe they work. If they don't work, we probably don't do them right. If we don't do them right, it won't help if we just do something else and then do that wrong and blame it on that, you know? So let's fix the thing first. Changing the defense, yes, can be important, especially if you feel like the opponent does a good job to exploit your weaknesses, then let's change defense. But let's try to fix this first and bring new subs in. Also depends. I mean, maybe they got on a run because one player is just messing up the whole time. Then this can be very easily solved. You'll need a timeout. You just go to the table, call the sub, player out, problem solved. Sure, sure. (laughs) Everything's fine. So ideally, it's done with a substitution. And you don't need to do anything else. Calling a timeout um, would be second and changing the defense would be third. And then I just hope that (laughs) one of those three things works. Works. (laughs)
2: Well,
1: coach, my follow-up We know this is a very contextual answer and it depends based off of your team and where you're at. And I guess that leads to my follow-up question is, would any of these answers change based off of you are at home versus on the road or the quality of your opponent as far as you know, would you be more quick to maybe call a timeout if you're on the road and a team hits a couple threes and their crowd is really into it, as opposed to at home, maybe letting them play?
0: Well, you give the crowd another minute to celebrate if you take a quick timeout. (laughs) That's that's true. There you go. (laughs) this This would be the solution. For me, it's more about how we look, what feeling I get about the group. Do we look insecure? Do we look like we need help? Do the players look like they need some new input or are we fine? Sometimes you look at the player's eyes and they know exactly what they did wrong. It won't change. I can tell them in timeout, I can tell them again, they're not going to hear anything new. So they know what they've been doing wrong. They huddle up, they talk about it. And even though we might make another mistake, we still look sharp and ready. and you might not have to do anything. So for me, I would say it doesn't matter whether you're at home or on the road. It more depends on how we look, how body language is like, and how players are reacting. Coach,
2: with these quick huddle ups... Are you working on them at all? Because I I feel sometimes, you know, coaches yell, huddle up, huddle up, and the guys get together and, like, hey, come on, guys, let's play harder. (laughs) Does that necessarily solve anything? So, what kind of influence are you trying to have on these quick huddle ups with your team, you know, when it's just the players?
0: First of all, I have them huddle up in practice as well. So they get used to it. Sometimes, I mean, they may not have anything to say, but just by huddling up, you feel the team is getting closer, literally guys are just getting together and if you stand together in a huddle you cannot bitch about the referee you know you cannot go to the referee get a technical because you're huddling up you know yeah. <laughs> sometimes even if you just say hey let's play harder one two three let's go that's better than five players one guy looking frustrated into the stands, looking for his wife to show her with his eyes how stupid his teammate just acted the other <laughs> right. guy is yelling at the referee getting a technical and the third guy is talking to his opponent sometimes you don't have to say much but at least. Get Together and give your group the feeling of, okay, hey, on to the next one. And uh, I tell my players if if you have nothing else to say, then just say, hey, forget about it, on to the next one. This is what we do next. This is the defense we do next. This is the offense we run next. And that's always something you can talk about.
2: All right, coach, our next start subsit for you. We know you're also a coach who likes to play through the post. And so we call this one tough to teach. So tough to teach your big men when you want to play through the post. So start, sub, or sit in terms of what's the hardest, teaching them patience, teaching them how to pass out of the post, or teaching them to establish position in the post?
0: Wow. All three things are tough to teach, especially if they haven't been taught at an early age. I would say again, it really depends on the player. For some players, they are very good at positioning. They do everything right, but then they get the ball and just can't pass the ball out. Mm -hmm. I think positioning is something that is easier to teach because that's the thing that if they have learned anything in their youth development, it's probably positioning. So at least they have something to fall back to and something they remember. And sometimes they just need to be reminded of it. Of course, then you have some players who just don't know how to position themselves, but then you don't throw them the ball in the post anyway. So I would say positioning is maybe the easiest thing. Mm-hmm. The patience thing is something that comes with experience and also with understanding what are we looking for in the post. We give our players a clear instructions of order what to do when you catch the ball in the post. So the first thing is quick move. Uh, If you have a quick move because you have a high-low position or you have a quick drop step because your defender did not do a good job on jumping below you on the catch, you have an open angle to attack. Or if you have both feet in the paint, then you go for a quick move. You just attack, period. That's number one. Always number one. If you don't have a quick move, the second thing, and this is where patience comes in place, we have our cut automatics, cut, fill, handoff, flip post actions. Yeah, I think that's... Kind of easy to teach because if you don't have a quick move, you need to wait for those cuts. And if this cut is done, then you can go to work. And then comes the passing. The third thing is then, okay, you go to work one-on-one. And if you have any kind of advantage, you pass the ball up. I think passing is the most difficult to teach because you have so many different variations of passers to cutters from the weak side, to cutters from strong side, to shooters on the ball side, to shooters on the weak side. You have so many different situations against double team from top, against double team from baseline. A lot of techniques, a lot of reads. So I would definitely say passing is the most difficult thing to teach. But it's doable. I mean, we've seen it. Also with us, we're talking about the same big man, Andreas Seifert, German national team. He was known to be an excellent scorer in the post, but he would rarely pass the ball. Now he's known for being one of the best big man passers in the league. He has really developed that skill. But I think part of that was because he knows, okay, I'm going to have my chance to attack one-on-one when all the cuts are finished.
1: Coach, with the patience and maybe someone that's not a great passer, how about adding in maybe like a dribble handoff out from the post? So a dribble out and handoff. So instead of trying to become a passer, someone that just is either going to score it or can dribble off and get into some sort of DHO action. Yes. Is that part of the sort of package that you would teach a a post player as well?
0: Absolutely. We have this option also to go into the dribble handoff. And not only if the post is not a great passer, it's also... If the post is not a great post-up player, so we still right. want to get the ball towards the rim, and penetrations are not only drill penetrations. Penetrations can also be penetrating passes, and. I feel like if you have the ball close to the rim, it puts a lot of pressure on the defense and it opens some space for shooters. So we would even throw the ball into the post, not to score out of the post, maybe to score out of cut and some weak side action and making those passes. But if that doesn't happen, some of our players who are not known as low post threats are asked and told to go into dribble handoff action. We use this with the national team a lot because we have. The situation that, on one hand, we can have a Rashid Mal who's one of the most dominant big men. He can score one on one with the ball in his hands. He's a point center, and we want to throw the ball inside. And if we don't have him in that certain window, but we still have all those poster players, then we just use those for dribble handoff actions and get the ball moving and get the offensive going. So, yes, we use this a lot.
2: Are there positions on the floor that you find it hard then to find the passes or maybe make the dribble handoffs in terms of if he catches? too low on the baseline or like in that short corner? Is there really just no angle to really make those passes? Are you trying to tell your big men like, Hey, try to position yourself here I mean, obviously you can't get that quick finish.
0: If you have a very skilled passer, he will find a way to get it out there. But if we get too close to the baseline or even too close to the sideline, it's very dangerous to get trapped on this handoff. So we try to stay away from this. Okay. Besides this, it's sometimes it's better to start the ball too far away from the basket for the dribble handoff action because you don't need so many dribbles. Right? With one dribble, you're at the three-point line, you can hand it off. So we tell our picks, if you don't catch the ball deep enough to go to work on your men, then go into that dribble handle faction. action.
1: Coach, we got one more start, sub, or sit for you here. So this last one is, in your opinion, what makes a great 45 cut? So what it is about that cut that would makes it particularly hard to guard? So the options are, is it the speed of the cut? So how hard that guy cuts? Is it the timing? either early or later, or is it the personnel of the cutters or the two involved on that backside? So if the shooter's in the corner and, and- it confuses the defense because a non-shooter cuts and they decide who to stay. So basically, is the personnel important in that 45?
0: So to destroy your question, I think all three are important. <laughs> 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 Let me still try to bring them in some kind of order. Uh, <laughs> okay. I think the I would start the personnel because if you cut a five foot four midget under the basket, it may not be. Uh, effective so i think it's always better to cut the more athletic player and keep the better shooter out so i would go with personnel start the personnel for me timing always beats speed you can see this when young teams play veteran teams they might be quicker but they still might receive one fast break basket after the other because the veteran team just knows when to start running they just know when to hit ahead and I think the timing is crucial. The change of speed is probably more important than the absolute speed. Always uh, in everything and crossovers and fakes. It's not about the speed. It's about the change of speed. And then, of course, speed can make up for a lot of things. But if you cut the wrong guy at the wrong time, speed is not going to fix it for you
1: coach the follow-up on the timing and working on the timing with players there's times when maybe just making that 45 cut early to clear a space maybe for Mm -hmm. some other action is valuable versus maybe trying to wait and pause and actually get the back door on that so how do you differentiate cutting early versus cutting late in that read
0: well i would cut a guy early if he's a non-respected shooter Uh uh-huh because the defender could sag in too much and eat up too much space for our offense. So, if I have somebody who cannot shoot the basketball or who at least cannot shoot it at a high percentage, I would cut him early. Besides this, I'm not a big fan of overcutting. And I think you can see the lower level the players are coming from, the more they cut.
1: Right. <laughs> that's, yeah.
0: That's an experience <laughs> that I made. They cut all the time from anywhere. And sometimes it's better just to stay wide, keep the floor spread. A non-shooter, yes, I would cut immediately. Beside this, I would wait and see what the defense does. If the defense turns its head and you can create an advantage with the cut, do it. Basketball offense is about creating advantages. And if you don't create an advantage with the cut, don't cut. You might create an advantage just by being spaced out and creating space for the ball handler, driver, post player, whatever.
2: Does it change at all? Because you see it a lot when you do like a a drag screen kind of in transition, you'll see a lot of teams come off and it seems like it's almost an automatic. So does that factor into your thoughts? If it's a drag screen, maybe let's cut regardless, because maybe you can get that backdoor more often.
0: Yeah, we do this. For example, if we run the drag screen with the four, we have the five men cut. But that's according to the same rule, the five men, a non-shooter cut under the basket. Right. So, of course, a lot of times, and again, it goes by, do we get an advantage out of it? If the defense is not set up and the one player playing in between loses me and turns his head towards me, yes, of course I can cut. But if I'm a player who's not very athletic and is a better three-point shooter than finisher at the rim against a challenging defense, then it might be better to just stay out. So I think it really depends on the personnel and the situation.
1: Coach, you're off the start, sub or sit hot seat.
0: I survived. Great.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Loved all your answers there. And that was a lot of fun. So thank you for going through that. Coach, we got one more question for you to close the podcast. Before we do, this has been awesome. We really appreciate you coming on today and spending time with us. So thank you for that.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Absolutely. And I hope you're not messing this up with your final question now. (laughs) 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 We'll just
2: end it here then. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So coach,
1: our final question for you, what's one of the best investments that you've made in
0: your career as a coach? As a coach. So uh, since this is not a financial podcast, (laughs) I'm (laughs) going to answer from coaching perspective. I think that the. Best investment as a person, not only as a coach, is always investment in your education, investment in getting smarter or getting better in in certain areas. So this can be an hour of reading a book. This can be half an hour of listening to a podcast or half an hour to look at a coach clinic or whatever uh, it might be. In my particular situation, I think there's two things. Uh, Number one, the years I invested getting my university degree. And I studied law and this has nothing to do with my profession right now, but it still was a well-invested time because it made me kind of independent of success. And I was able to coach without fear. And maybe the reason I didn't get fired in my 23 years of being a head coach was because I was never afraid of getting fired. And I don't know if this would have been the case if I didn't have my law degree in my back pocket. So that was very well invested. The other thing I would say... For my development as a coach, I think the years I coached youth teams were the best investment because it really taught me a lot about handling personnel, handling people, not only the players, also the parents, because at the end of the day, when you coach youth teams, it's the parents, later on, it's the agents. It's the same thing. <laughs> they're they're not objective. <laughs> they just I think right. they're kid or a client is the best in the world and the coach is always the bad guy so it taught me a lot and i started coaching very very early so i was 15 16 years old when i coached my first youth teams and i was fortunate to be for 10 years exclusively in youth basketball and basically coach every single age group and for every age group there were different challenges and challenges that prepared me for my job as a head coach on first league level so i would say those two things probably were the best investments for me
1: thank you so much for listening to this episode please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like Slapping Backboard,
2: <laughs> Slapping <and> Glass,
0: <laughs> Slapping Glass. That's kind of funny. I like That's that.
2: Let's <laughs> Slapping Glass.